Acts 13, 1 through 12 today. And let's pray. Our Father, lead us to Christ today by your word as sheep to green pastures. Uh, Restore our souls, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Acts 13, 1 through 12. Now there were in the church of Antioch uh, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamas, the magician, for that was the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Praise God. This is his word. You may be seated. In this part of the world, you've probably heard of Mike the Headless Chicken. Born in Fruta in 1945, decapitated by his owner, died 18 months later. They kept him alive by putting corn and then water down his esophagus. He, he went on, a, he, they made money off of him, toured around the country. Somehow he had a little bit of brain left and he was able to survive for 18 months. And I think he died because they forgot to feed him or something. Um, so they actually have a, a Mike the Headless Chicken celebration in fruit every year if you want to participate. <laughs> One of my favorite passages, I was telling some people last week, in Acts 19, uh, the Ephesians are all in a huff because of Paul and the things that Paul has said. There's a really a nearly riotous crowd at the theater 
And in Acts 19, it says, Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. What a stark contrast that is to, to what Barnabas exhorts the Antiochian converts after their revival in Antioch from back in Acts chapter 11 and verse 23 when he says to them to re, uh, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. With steadfast purpose. So are we Mike the Headless Chicken? Invested zealously in a cause, yet not knowing quite why we have come together? Or are we the body of Christ, living with steadfast purpose because we have a head? In this passage, uh, Christ the head animates his body by the Holy Spirit to accomplish his great redemptive mission, which is subduing the enemy and making straight paths through preaching, prayer, and worship. Christ, the head, animates his body by the Holy Spirit to accomplish the great redemptive mission, subduing the enemy and making straight paths by the preaching of the word and prayer and worship. Um, So the first way that we see that Christ animates his body for the mission is he's establishing what I'm calling an organic institution. I'm sure that's not original to me, but the church is an organic institution. Uh, chapter 11 concluded with Paul and Barnabas making their way down from Antioch, the 300-mile journey to bring uh, supplies for the needs of the saints in Judea in light of the coming uh, famine. So they traveled 300 miles down. And then chapter 12 was this sort of break in between and the amazing story of Christ putting his enemy Herod to open shame by releasing Peter from prison and then killing Herod when he took praise from people and did not rebuke them. Now chapter 12 concludes in verse 25 of chapter 12, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So they have their trio now, and they've returned back another 300-mile journey back to Antioch. Uh, Barnabas, the last couple of years, has traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch to Tarsus to Antioch to Jerusalem back to Antioch. It's 1,200 miles. I I looked on maps. That's from here to Memphis. Uh, Walking, it's about 400 miles. 400 hours of walking. 1,200 miles. And and really, Barnabas is only just starting. He's going to go on more missionary journeys. Now, Christ is kind of stacked. Uh, Antioch is a strategic outpost. It's, it's uh, full of people from all over the world. And there's been this revival there. And here Jesus has stacked his strategic outpost with really an embarrassment of riches in terms of teachers in Antioch and leadership. We have Barnabas. Barnabas, who is of Cyprus. We've seen him many times. Son, son of encouragement together with, with Saul. <coughs> Um, this man, Simon, called Niger, uh, nicknames were common, um, and his skin was likely black. That's where the name Niger comes from, probably from North Africa. Uh, Lucius of Cyrene also is in North Africa. 
Um, and remember, when the revival happened in Antioch, it was men from Cyprus and Cyrene who brought the word to the Hellenists in Antioch. And then there's this man, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, which um, could mean he, he had the same wet nurse, or it could mean that he was actually a freed slave. Um, oftentimes when a boy would grow up with slaves around him, when he achieved power, he would release that slave. So he could have grown up with Herod the Tetrarch in that way. Or they could have been childhood friends. Um, by the way, last week I was mixing up some Herods. <laughs> Uh, so I had said a couple of times it was Herod Antipas who died in uh, chapter 12. It was Herod Agrippa. Antipas was one of the sons of Herod. Agrippa was a grandson of Herod. And it was Antipas who murdered John the Baptist. Um, Agrippa was from chapter 12. Uh, then there's another Herod. There's so many Herods. Herod the Tetrarch or Her- Herod Philip is another son of Herod the Great. And this Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Philip, was the friend of Manian. Um, And then finally they have Saul. (laughs) Saul from Tarsus, the the Pharisee, the enemy of enemies of the Lord, now converted. So quite a collection of teachers from really all over the Mediterranean world. The, The diversity of these men reflects the diversity in that city, which is a beautiful expression of the New Covenant Gospel. Uh, going into all the world. The, the gospel's going into all the world. And here's this collection of men from all over the Mediterranean world. Verse 2, they were worshiping and fasting together. It was then that, that the Spirit said, and we're not told how the Spirit communicated this to them, but He said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So they're to, they're to go. They're to leave this Antioch, and they're to go to foreign missions and and to go to the Gentiles. To which, which is interesting, the church responds with yet more prayer and fasting. I think typically we think of, I'm going to engage in prayer and fasting before I make a major decision. Here the major decision has already been made, and they're praying and fasting over it. And likewise, they lay hands on them. And again, it's not as though it's these men that are calling them to this activity. It's that the Holy Spirit has called them to this activity. And the church affirms the calling in them, their gifting and the opportunity. We do the same thing. Um, If we were to ordain a new elder or a new deacon uh, or, or send out a missionary, we would lay hands on them as an expression of affirmation. The church affirms your gifting, your calling. We support you. In this endeavor. And notice, all of this takes place in the context of worship. All too often, the church can turn ministry and missions and evangelism and even things like ordination and calling into kind of a a pragmatic business venture. When the proper context of these things is worship. So the first point I want us to see as we observe Christ, the head animating his body for the work of the church, is, is, is that it's an organic institution. So here's what I kind of mean by that. We can easily fall off either side of this balance beam. We can say that the church is organic. It's a body. It's the bride of Christ. It's the vine. And, but we can take this too far, can't we? Uh, many house churches kind of fall off this side of the balance beam. 
There's a sort of freedom of expression to the point of being unbiblical. Um, very little oversight or doctrinal standards. No structure. Um, no doing everything in decency and in order. On the other hand, we can fall off the balance beam on the institutional side of the church. Uh, on the one hand, the church is a kingdom. It's a military force. It's a house. It's a structure. It has officers. It has various positions for people to fulfill. Um, and it's really meant to be an, a well-oiled machine. But the church is not a bureaucracy. It's not to be propelled by pragmatism or, or money or ambition. So it's easy to fall off either side, but it is an organic institution. We should keep those things in balance. The life of the church is in her worship, in her spirit-empowered worship. And in this text, the commissioning of missionaries is in the context of worship. So this is how Christ is animating his body as the head, um, as an organic institution. We see this in Colossians 2, where Paul calls us to hold fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. To hold fast to the head. That, that's how we grow. On the one hand, <clears throat> um, an ex- excessive focus on uh, the institutional aspect of the church, that structure, some people have called it the trellis that holds up the vine. Um, too much focus on that can divert our attention from the main thing, which is the vibrant, life-giving vine. That is Christ and his people, his body. On the other hand, no one can say that a kingdom is not an institution, <laughs> Or we're often called like a, a military force in scripture, right? Like you military guys know the military is institution. So we have both sides. So here King Jesus provides his church um, in this strategic military outpost with men who will lead and teach, men who will strategize and send, men who will affirm men who will support new fronts in the war against sin and devil. Um, But we see them doing it guided by the Holy Spirit in worship with prayer and fasting, utterly submitted to the guiding will of the head, nourished and knit together by him. So here Jesus is animating his body and he rules his kingdom as an organic institution. Uh, Now we move on to see what the mission here consists of. What is the battle? What is the front, the struggle? Uh, I'm calling this second point the micro of the macro. We have a, in, in view here a small story, but it's a, it's a microcosm of the great picture that Jesus is accomplishing. Saul and Barnabas and John Mark set, set sail for Cyprus. It's the little island there off the coast. Um, this again is Barnabas' home country, so it makes sense they go back there and start there. Um, Salamis is on the eastern part of the island. Uh, and they go to the synagogue. This is Paul's MO. Anywhere he goes, he goes to the Jew first, as we read in, in Romans. He goes to the Jew first and then to, then to the Gentile, because to the Jew belongs the covenant and the promises. And so really, they go as a call to repentance to the Jews, but it's also a judgment for the Jews. Each time they reject Christ, 
its judgment on them. So they go to the synagogues first. Then they travel from Salamis to Paphos, which is 90 miles to the west. Cyprus itself is 140 miles across. And it seems like they may have been evangelizing the whole island, or they may have just traveled from the one city to the other. But in verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. This is the second magician to oppose the gospel. We had the first in Simon Magus, Magus in uh, chapter 8. Uh, his name, this is funny, Jesus is a common name in that time. But it not it ironic that his name is Son of Jesus, this person who opposes the gospel? He was, it says in verse 7, with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. A proconsul is, is a governor of a, a province that doesn't have soldiers in it, essentially. Um, so Sergius Paulus, that's a family name. So just like us, kind of similar to us, they had three names. So the last two are family names. We are not given his first name. Um, but there have been several inscriptions found through archaeology of people bearing this family name, Sergius Paulus, um, during this time in Cyprus. Uh, Bar-Jesus, he may have been a court astrologer. We don't know exactly the role he played. And here, Sergius Paulus is a man of intelligence, Luke says. And why he says that, we don't know. Um, But perhaps it's because, in verse 7, he summons Barnabas and Paul, and he says he sought to hear the word of God. That, to me, is a mark of intelligence, right? Um, Saul, Paul, as he was prone to do, must have been making waves to attract the attention of this governor. Or perhaps Bar-Jesus met them down at the synagogue as he was a Jew and told Paulus about them. But whatever the case, this is an amazing providence that they travel from Antioch to Cyprus and now they have the audience of this man of authority, a Roman uh, proconsul. So uh, Elimas, the is the other name of Bar-Jesus here given. And he opposes the gospel. He tries to convince Sergius Paulus away from the gospel. Uh, and this magician, he reminds me of that character, um, Grima Wormtongue in The Lord of the Rings. He's kind of there whispering in the, king of the, uh, the, the, the ear of the king. He realizes that the king's theology, really his job hinges on the king's the, or the proconsul's theology. So he's trying to convince him away from the gospel. Then in verse 9, but Saul, who is also called Paul. um, So here it's often confused that Paul is a name given to Saul after his conversion. Um, I've thought that before, but it's really just his Roman name. He's had that all along. But now it seems Luke is using it more as he branches out into a more Gentile context. He's referring to him more as Paul rather than Saul. Um, So Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, looked intently at him and said, um, and he spoke words to him. And Paul's words here are not like mere frustration or rage. Um, It says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He's not just attacking Elimas. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. It harkens back to me, in my mind, to the Old Testament prophets. This is an oracle of judgment given to him by God. He says to him, you son of the devil, 
There's some irony there too because he goes by Bar Jesus and now he's Bar Satan. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Uh, this rebuke is where I see the micro and the macro, the, the small battle that represents the greater perspective on the great war. Um, Satan, likewise, like his son, has been making crooked the straight paths of the Lord from the beginning. I think Paul's harsh. Listen to Jesus, to the Pharisees, when he says to them, You are of your father the devil. This is in John eight forty four. You are of the father, your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of what is his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. This is Satan we're talking about. But Paul calls Bar Jesus son of Satan. This is the essence, I think, of what it means uh, to do what's right in our own eyes, is, is to twist, to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord, just like the devil does, just like he did in the garden. Did God really say? This is what it means to, to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to take the standard of right and wrong upon ourselves. God's paths are straight, they're clear, they're direct, they're perspicuous. They're not always easy to understand and certainly not easy to follow as broken sinners, but they are straight paths. So anytime anyone takes the plain meaning of Scripture and twists it, if they're getting creative, if they're doing gymnastics, interpretive gymnastics, we need to watch out because they, or we, are after an agenda. Remember what John said in 1 John. Uh, why did Jesus come? John, 1 John 3.8 The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That This liar, this chief enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and vin- uh, villainy. He, he's the deceiver. He's the crooked one. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Psalm 110, that great military psalm of triumph. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Um, This right here is the age of redemptive history that we live in. The age where Jesus is putting, or God is putting all of Jesus' enemies under his feet. That image there is not, I used to think of it as like an ottoman, like he's relaxing on them. Uh, it's more like an enemy that's been conquered and he's putting his foot on their neck. It reminds you of Genesis 3.15, doesn't it? This is the age we live in when Jesus is doing that to Satan. Again, we read in Hebrews 2, 8 and 9, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I think, I feel the weight of that, don't you? It's in subjection to him, but we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. 
So it's a process. We're in this process. We're in this battle and we're privileged to be given a part in this battle. As Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12-13, For we do, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. So we see yet again here Christ the head animating his church for the mission to destroy the works of the devil. We get to participate in that. Destroying the works of the devil. To restore straight paths out of crooked ones. This is the micro out of the macro that I'm seeing here. The, The rebuke of Elymas, the son of the devil, reminds us of our own spirit-empowered battles to make straight paths in the midst of a crooked generation, holding fast to the head. Finally, we see the effect of Christ, the head, animating his church, uh, which is the defeat of his enemies. This is the third and final point, is that Christ's enemies are subdued. Uh, I bring it up fairly often, but it's so clear and helpful Question 26 of the Shorter Catechism. How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. He's our king. He's restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So here God, working through Paul, utterly destroys his enemy in Cyprus. First, blinding Elamas, and second, by saving Sergius Paulus. Paul says in verse 11, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Um, So here, Paul, who was the great enemy of Christ, the prime example of being subdued to the Lordship of Christ, proclaims the same judgment on Elymas that he received, which is temporary blindness. God does this frequently in Scripture. Um, Sodom and and Gomorrah, for example, he, he blinds people. And here, in this case, I think, there's a touch of mercy in it in that he didn't strike him dead as he did with Herod. And also it's a temporary blindness. And, and also blindness, in some sense, prevents further sinning. There's also a judgment, a judgment from the Lord. Paul says, the hand of the Lord is upon you. Um, and this blindness represents the darkness in which Elymas lives. And now as Christians, we can cheer uh, the embarrassment of the wicked we, we can say, you know, the Lord got him. He crushed him, right? But the greater rejoicing is actually the embarrassment of the great enemy when Christ converts one of his to himself. And that's what happens to Sergius Paulus. Uh, verse 12, Then the proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, uh, for he was astonished by the teaching of the Lord. So first we have in Acts, we have the Jews... Then the Samaritans, the hated Samaritans by the Jews. Then a Roman centurion is saved. Then this eclectic bunch from Antioch. And now, of all people, a Roman proconsul. 
the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. I mean, the Sanhedrin has got to be having a fit about this. This runaway bunch of renegades just spreading all over to into the Gentiles, the filthy Gentiles. But right here we see the heel of King Jesus is on the head of the serpent. His eyes are, eyes are beginning to, to, to bulge out. Before we close, I want to offer three exhortations uh, that will help us as we engage the enemy on the fronts wherein God has placed us. Uh, the first is rejoice that we have been subdued by King Jesus. And we like to think that we're represented by Paul in this story, right? And we are, in a sense, in the, in the sense that we're now engaged in the same battle by the same Spirit, serving the same Christ. But let's remember that we too were once following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. He could have struck us blind. He could have killed us like Herod, but he saved us like Sergius Paulus. We are testimonies to the embarrassment of the serpent and to the glory of the king. Second exhortation uh, engage in the simple but powerful labors of prayer and worship in the Word. These are the means which Christ uses. These are the things, the tools in His hands that are powerful weapons of warfare. The labors of prayer and worship in the Word. I have to quote this from Kevin DeYoung at least once a year, so here it goes. Um, from his article from uh, called The Glory of Plotting. He says, Until we are content <coughs> excuse me, until we are content with being one of the million nameless, faceless church members and not the next globe trotting rock star, we aren't ready to be part of the church. In the grand scheme of things, most of us are going to be more of an ampliatus or a phlegion. I can't even pronounce their names. Then an Apostle Paul. And maybe that's why so many Christians are getting tired of the church. We haven't learned to be part of the crowd. We haven't learned to be ordinary. Our jobs are often mundane. Our devotional times often seem like a waste. Church services are often forgettable. That's life. We drive to the same places, go through the same routines with the kids, buy the same groceries at the store, and share a bed with the same person every night. Church is often the same too. Same doctrine, same basic order of worship, same preacher, same people. But in all the smallness and sameness, God works. Like the smallest seed in the garden growing to an unbelievable height. Like beloved Tychicus, that faithful minister delivering the mail and apostolic greetings. Life is usually pretty ordinary, just like following Jesus most days. Daily discipleship is not a new revolution each morning or an agent of global transformation every evening. It is a long obedience in the same direction. Engage in the simple labors of prayer and worship in the Word. They're powerful tools in God's hand for His warfare. Third exhortation is to remain faithful to the head with steadfast purpose. Uh, we might get caught up kind of in the miraculous works in these stories, the, the works of the Spirit, but honestly, I'm caught up in, in the other side of things, 
in the power of an eclectic band of, of ragtag outcasts who worship and fast and pray and walk on their feet thousands of miles for the sake of the gospel. Because they know the mission of their head, King Jesus. So, we are not Mike the Headless Chicken. We know our head. We know his mission. And moreover, we know whom we have believed. And we are persuaded that he is able to bring the good work he began in us to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen.